All right, I'm going to read from Isaiah 49, and uh, I'm going to add a few verses. I'm going to add, start at verse 1 and read through 18, instead of it saying 5 through 18. The verses can be found on page 609 of those blue pew Bibles. You're welcome just to listen, um, and then when we look at the sermon together, um, you can open up the Bibles then if you want to. Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said... I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Cyrene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please pray with me as we look at this text together. Father, we praise you that you are the Ancient of Days. And we praise you that you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are seated at the right hand of the Father and that you are proclaimed as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We praise you that you are in heaven, in a body like ours, yet renewed and perfected. And we praise you that you have said that we can draw near to you to help us, to give us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. And so we draw near. Father, I pray that in the next few minutes, uh, these women and these men here, these girls and boys, would draw near to you. That at some point in the next few minutes, you would cause them to speak to you. And that you would speak to them through your word. Holy Spirit, you know each of our hearts. We don't even know all of our names. We don't even know each other. Father, so much of this gathering together can feel so new and so foreign to us. Holy Spirit, we depend on you to meet us and to open our eyes. And so we ask that you would do that to a woman and to a man in this room. Father, you know how you have shaped their days that we would be here together listening to this text. And so would you make it alive for us? Lord Jesus, you know that we need to see you. We confess that we are overwhelmed with the world that we see. We are either engaged in it to such a degree that we don't see anyone around us, and we go about our own business and we are shocked into a sense of reality when we gather together. It's the first time that we've thought about other people all week. But Father, for others of us, our eyes look into the brokenness of the world and we are paralyzed. We don't know what to do. It's overwhelming. The systems are broken. The people are broken. The leaders are broken. We, we are broken. Jesus, I am broken. We come before you and we pray that you would be made known to us as our Savior, as our strength, and as our Good Shepherd. Father, I pray for the women and the men who are here who desperately need to know that you are a Good Shepherd. Would you communicate that through your spirit. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have given us hope as we come to this text. And we ask you in these next few minutes, would you make sense of it for us so that you would be seen and that your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would be made beautiful. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen. You guys, we continue our study and our study and the theme of our study for this summer has been for the blessing of the nations. We've asked the question, who is this God of the scripture, the God who makes covenant with his people? Why does he make covenant with his people? And the answer that is given to us as early as Genesis is 12 
is that the nations would be blessed, that the nations would come to know him. We have seen this through the first five chapters of the Bible. We have seen it through the giving of the law. We have seen it through the history of God's people and the books of the kings. We have seen it in the songs of God's people through the Psalms and how this theme of the nations being blessed through God's interaction with his people is woven into the fabric of worship throughout Scripture. And today we come to the prophets, this picture of Isaiah in Isaiah 49. And even here, through the prophets, we see the blessing of the nations. I want you to know that Isaiah is a difficult book to read. My father asked me this week, what are you preaching on? I said, it's Isaiah 49. And he goes, oh, I cannot believe it. He goes, that book is so hard to read. He goes, I don't think I've ever made sense of it. I know some of you for whom it's your favorite book of the Bible, and you are in it all the time. You love it. In this story, this prophecy of Isaiah that took place over 40-plus years, we get some of the most beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of a God whose compassion is poured out on his people, the promise of the virgin birth, the peace of the lion laying with the lamb, the, the speaking of comfort to God's people, the promise to be renewed if you wait for him. This incredible picture of who Jesus is as the suffering servant. And even here in Isaiah 49, this picture of God's commitment to bless the nations through his people. Isaiah is filled with judgment and destruction. It's about exile and return. It is about... Um, uh, it is about accusation, and it is about forgiveness, and it is about restoration. It's a rich book, but I think that we can glean from this chapter some pretty incredible things today about this fear of being forgotten and how it plays into our inability to hold the idea that our lives are to be spent, to be poured out for the blessing of the nations. Mita and I are watching a uh, one-season television show. It's my favorite kind because I do have to confess, I'm a binge watcher when it comes to TV. I think for those of us who grew up in the 70s and the 80s, to have a television show that isn't supposed to come out till next week, just like four, three, two, one seconds away, it's like mind-blowing. And you're like, yes, I'll watch one more. And Mita and I invariably stay up too late watching television sometimes. We've been watching this season, this show called 1883, and it's actually a prequel to another show that's, that's pretty rough, Yellowstone. It's a violent show, but there is in it such imaginable deep truth and beauty in the midst of evil that it is captivating. I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to tell you much about this show because I got chastised this week by one of you for my ability to ruin movies for you. So I'm not going to tell you much about this show, but what I am going to tell you is that there's this character in the show that at one point in the show comes to grips with this idea of death. And this character says, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. I see that everything around me dies. The butterflies die, the birds die, the rabbits die, the horses die, the cows die. Even stars die. 
I'm not afraid to die. What I'm afraid of is being forgotten. And I was stopped. I was reminded of something that my father said to me not long ago. My father is nearing 80. My father uh, always thinks that he has one foot in the grave, though his son, who is a doctor, assures him that, Dad, you don't have one foot in the grave. Quit trying to put it in there. But my dad loves to talk about his death. And he told me the other day, he said, what is overwhelming is that two generations beyond your children, my name won't be known. Stories might be told about me, but you'll get most of them wrong. And my name won't be known. What do we do with this idea of being forgotten? And how does it impact our ability to hold on to the idea that our lives are to be led, that the nations would be blessed? That's why you go to college. That's why you get an education. That's why you work as a Christian. If your mission is God's mission, that the nations would be blessed. Isaiah 49 is this great passage that depicts it in this book of Isaiah. There are many places you could go to in Isaiah. So those of you who love Isaiah will come to me afterwards and say, you could have gone here and you could have gone here and you could have gone here, but I want to go here. And I want to go here because now we are in the kitchen of God. What do I mean by that? We were out to eat dinner the other night, and there was a group next to us that got into an argument. Have you ever been in that situation where the table next to you is arguing in public? And you think to yourself, now that's a family conversation that shouldn't be happening out here. In our family, the joke is, uh, excuse me, may I see you in the kitchen? <laughs> and when you get called into the kitchen, you know that there's going to be a discussion that needs to happen. Chapter 49 is a kitchen discussion in public. It's a discussion in which the nations and the coastlands, the peoples, are invited into. Do you see that in the very first verse? It says it right there. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. And then he begins to talk. I want to tell you who's in the kitchen. It's hard to understand the book of Isaiah sometimes. God is in the kitchen. He has just invited all the peoples of the world into the kitchen, right? And then Isaiah, the prophet, is in the kitchen. And Israel, God's people, they're in the kitchen too. And in some mysterious way, this other picture of this servant that is in the book of Isaiah is in the kitchen too. This picture that Jesus himself will take on himself, even in Luke chapter 4. That is who is in the kitchen and in the kitchen, we see this interaction. It starts with verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to try to explain it to you in a way that you can go home later and read it and get more out of it, okay? In verses 1 through 4, Isaiah, it seems like the servant who is speaking there, is calling out. And he says, the Lord called me. He shaped me. And the goal of his shaping of me was to make his name beautiful or to glorify his name. That was his goal. But Isaiah says in verse 4, but my labor has been in vain. He says it that clearly. Does verse 4 stand out to you? He says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. 
Isaiah is in the kitchen complaining, right? And what happens? In verses 5 and 6, God responds to him. God responds to Isaiah, responds to this servant speaking, and says, what you think I'm up to is too small. God says in verse 6, you, Isaiah, whom I have fashioned, he says, you who are honored in my eyes, he says, you servant of mine. In verse 6, God says, it is too light or too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. This is what he says. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And all of a sudden you begin to realize it's not just Isaiah the servant in the kitchen, but God is talking about his servant. And you have to scratch your head and go, who is that? Who is that? But God says that he is going to make his servant a light to the nations so that his salvation would go to the ends of the earth. In verse 7, God explains it a little bit more at the kitchen table. He says this. He says, and he's described as the Redeemer of Israel and Isaiah's favorite language for God and his Holy One. He says, kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. God speaks to his servant. The servant, as it says in verse 7, who is deeply despised and abhorred by the nations. Isaiah could say that he was deeply despised and abhorred by the nations. God's servant, the people of Israel, who meant to be a blessing to the nations and who failed, could definitely say that they were abhorred and despised by the nation, this nation of Assyria. But we, too, can see how Jesus is able to say that he is abhorred and despised. But God says that the rulers of the nations would come and prostrate themselves before him. And in verses 8 through 12... He describes his use of his servant to make his servant a shepherd and to bring his people back to him. He introduces this idea of a shepherd. I'm going to let you go back this week and read verses 8 through 12 and see how God says that I will enable you and use you to be a shepherd and bring my people back. And he says it's going to be so amazing that in verse 13, he actually says that even creation will exalt. Look at how he says it in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. God is sitting at the kitchen table reminding his servant both Isaiah and Israel, this is how I am going to use you. And the one who would take the mantle of the servant, Jesus himself. But not unlike your kitchen table, where there is always and regularly talking back, complaining, responding, you see it here in verse 14 as well. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. We've already talked about Zion, this name of the city where God would place his temple. 
but that name becomes personified, right? Personified means that it is treated as people because even the people of God take on the name Zion. You know that the people of God are going to be sent into exile and the people of God at that kitchen table are like, you've forgotten about us. You've forgotten me. You've forsaken me. The language is marital language. You have left me, your spouse. I'm all alone. You've left me. And then God responds in verses 15 through 18 with this most incredible promise. And he says, I will not forget you. And you've got to read these with me, 15 and 16. He says this, and he asks the question of Zion at the kitchen table, as it were. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Listen, there have been a lot of children that have been gifted to this church, and there have been a lot of nursing that's happened in this church. And I want to ask those of you who have nursed the children of this church, how easy is it for, to forget a child who is nursing? You would go, wait a minute, how in the world could that person be forgotten? There was a time when we were young and our children were infants that Mita would feed our children and then wake up in the morning scared to death. And she would say, wait a minute, how do they sleep through the night? And I was like, baby, you nursed the baby in the middle of the night and you put Ben back in the crib. And Mita would go, well, I, I did that? Like, and you know how it is, right? You're so tired. You're so tired. And God says, look, even these could forget, could forget, could lose compassion. Yet, God says, I will not, forgive you. I will not forget you. And then he says in 16, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are always before me. Your protection is all that I think about. It is constantly in my mind. He says, lift up your eyes around and see. All of these people who I'm going to call, they gather to you. I will not forget you. And the following, verses 19 and following, is about these nations coming in. It is about God fulfilling his covenant promises that the nations would be blessed. You got to go read it this week. You got to look at this kitchen table conversation because you have to ask yourself, what does this have to do with me? And that's what I want to end with. How do we, Christ the King Church Newton, need to hear this kitchen table conversation that we're invited into? Because I think we too struggle with the idea of being forgotten. We certainly struggle with the idea of death. You may tell yourself, I've come to terms with death. But if you really sat down and started thinking about your life, how many of the decisions that you make, oh, we might never get to do this again, so we're going to do it now no matter what it costs. Does your death play into the decisions of your life? We too are people who are afraid that we will be forgotten. And it's one of the reasons why we have such a hard time 
believing that our lives are to be spent for the blessing of the nations. I'm convinced that if we believed God will not forget us, we would be much quicker to give our entire lives away that the nations would be blessed. So why do we need to hear this? First, anyone who is here who is not a Christian, you are invited into this conversation. Did you see it in verse 1? All of you from coastlands and you of the peoples, come and listen. The first thing that God does when he explains himself in the Bible is he invites people who do not know him into the conversation. And he says, you are invited in because you are part of the plan. That's why God invites you in. This is amazing. God says in so many words, taste and see that I'm good. I want you to see what my character is like. So if you're here today and you would say, look, I am not a Christian. I've come to hear what the church has to say. I've come to figure it out. I've come to try to make sense of who this God of the Bible is. I want you to hear from this passage. It's not just me that invites you. God invites you to listen and discover him. It's amazing. He wants to make his name beautiful, glorified to you so that you might believe. For those of you who believe, what is the first thing that we see here? Listen, we are not unlike the servant that speaks and says that we've labored in vain. How many times do you feel like, hey, why do I live in New England? Why do I live in Boston? Why do I live in Wellesley? Why do I live in in this place? It seems so hard. The ground seems so tough. There seems to be such little fruit. In fact, it almost feels like we're shaped more than we are shaping. And this passage reminds us that God is doing more than you or I can ask or imagine. And he tells us in those first six verses that it is his faithfulness that is doing it. And I want to say something important to you. His faithfulness isn't dependent on your sight of it. God's faithfulness is not dependent on you seeing it, church. It is dependent on His saying it. It's dependent on His word. And that's the first thing that we learn. And we too, in Christ... The suffering servant of Isaiah, known in Isaiah 52 and 53, but even Jesus taking Isaiah 61 on his own lips and saying the year of the favor of the Lord is here, we too are called to make his name beautiful, church. That's what we are called to do. And so I ask you, to whom are you speaking of the name of the Lord? Listen, the pencil's getting sharper. What does it mean to tell people about God? It means to speak his name, who he is. And church, I want to ask you, if you think you are on the same mission of God, the same mission that God is on, to whom are you speaking the name of the Lord? 
Because that's what we hear in Isaiah 49. Second thing is from verses 7 through 12. You and I have a good shepherd. I can't wait for you this week to go back and read verses 8 through 12 and look at the picture of the shepherd. And you're going to stop and you're going to go, wait a minute, that sounds like Psalm 23. And you're going to go, wait a minute, Jesus is the one who says, I am the good shepherd in John. In church, I want to remind you of something. You have a good shepherd. You have one who shepherds your life, who gives you what you need, who feeds you in barren places. Do you feel like this is a barren place? Listen, I'm asking you to be serious about your heart. Do you feel like this is a barren place in which you don't know if you can be fed? Isaiah 49, 8 through 12, reminds us we have a good shepherd. And not only that, we have been called, because we are joined with Christ, into that shepherding. What is our job? Hey, sheep, come to Jesus. I want to tell you about how great he is and how compassionate he is and what he has done for you. I want to tell you. What's that called? Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? Jesus says, as you go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Proclaiming the name of Christ as we go. We get to be with the shepherd. You guys, that's our role. You're not alone. You have a shepherd. A shepherd to protect you. A shepherd to keep you. A shepherd to love you. A shepherd to remind you, I'm here. I've got this. You're mine. And the last thing is in verses 15 through 18. And I want you to look up here and I want you to hear this. You have not been forgotten by the God of the universe. Jeff prayed about the billion trillion stars that the Webb telescope is finding. The galaxies beyond galaxies that are in the size of a grain of sand in our sky. And the God who created those has not forgotten you. The image that he gives is the image that top lady gave in the writing of his song, A Debtor to Mercia, alone. He says, see, I have engraved you in the palm of my hand. Now I want to tell you, it's not easy being a minister because in any given week, you know, the text that we've picked have been picked in weeks in advance. This one was picked probably about six weeks ago. And it just so happened that I had an accident with my hand this week. I shot a bolt straight through it. I've got a bunch of stitches in my hand. And I want you to know that a hand that is cut up is a hand that you do not forget. Almost everything that you do, you do with two hands. The image that God is using here is an image that was of ancient Middle Eastern world. Because when they worshipped other gods, they would take and carve into the palm of their hand the name of the other god. 
some symbol of the other God. And it would cut and it would bleed and it would burn and it would begin to heal. But then you would try to do something with your hand and it would crack back open and bleed some more. And it would continually do that. Why did they do it? So that they would not forget their God. And you see here, God says, take my name and carve it in your hands. And you go, that's not what he says, Bradley. And you're right, that's not what he says. He says, no, I have put your name in the palm of my hands. I have carved your name in the palm of my hands. I will not forget you. And look, it doesn't take any imagination as to why Jesus went to Doubting Thomas and said, stick your fingers in my hand and see it is me. I love you. I have not forgotten you. When we are convinced that God does not forget us, we are secure to not have to live our best lives now. Church, that's not our calling. God's calling is through us to bless the nations. That's our calling. As we make his name beautiful, as he's glorified. And God has said, I haven't forgotten you. Isaiah 49 is a great chapter that helps understand the entirety of the book of Isaiah. But if you will spend some time in it this week, I think you will see that it is also a great chapter to understand your own heart, my own heart, my fear that God's going to forget me, but his promise that that's not the case. Will you pray with me as we come to the side?